Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, who is Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Maria Kronfeldner, Associate Professor in the Department of Philosophy at the Central European University in Budapest. Her book, which is called What's Left of Human Nature, a post-essentialist, pluralist, and interactive account of a contested concept, is just out from MIT Press. Much of the debate about the roles of nature versus nurture in the development of people has settled into accepting that it's a bit of both, although what each contributes to a given trait or feature and how much and how these two things interact are all still matters of dispute. In her new book, Kronfeldner critically examines instead the nature side of the dichotomy. What exactly is a human nature? What is it for something to be due to one's nature? Is it some kind of a fixed human essence? Is it a statistical norm? Is it a normative ideal of how a human being ought to be? Kronfeldner argues against an essentialist view of nature, and she replaces it with three distinct concepts, a descriptive nature, classificatory nature, and an explanatory nature, each of which does some of the various jobs that we want a nature concept to do, but it doesn't contribute to the role that the essentialist view has played in dehumanization. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Maria. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Hello, Carrie. Um, I'm very pleased to be talking with you about what's left of human nature, a post-essentialist, pluralist, and interactive account of a contested concept. Um, So before we get into the actual nitty-gritty of the book, um, I'd like to... uh, if you could tell us a bit about yourself, um, how you came to philosophy um, and to the areas that you uh, work in um, and how you came to write the book. Sure. Um, the ways into philosophy are certainly complex, at least in my case. Um, but what I do consciously know about how, in, how I ended up in philosophy is that I was a kind of an active artist, and I liked doing that a lot, but I was also active in sports, and somehow um, philosophy in was the nicest combination of these two things, which is, uh, I think, surprising for most people to hear such a background. Um, philosophy for me was the most minimal art I can think of. And at the same time, it was like sports, it was competitive and argumentative. And um, that convinced me that it's just my thing. And maybe I liked to sit alone at a desk thinking and writing, which is, I think, a precondition for um, being a philosopher. (laughs) Okay. Um, And then how about the topic of the book? That came because I was um, 
given that I had a background in art, I was very much interested in understanding creativity, how knowledge is produced in the mind. And if you start uh, studying the literature in philosophy on creativity, which is not really a lot, at least if you got raised in analytic philosophy as I was, then you, you, you come across uh, Darwinian accounts of creativity, about that trial and error picture. Right. And I found that fascinating because it was a naturalistic account and that kind of, it had, a, it had something to it. So I fell in love with that account in a way and studied it and had to end up as a critic of it in a way, but uh, still I had some good things to say about it too. And that led me to studying Darwinian thinking a lot. And this was my way from philosophy of mind, let's say, to philosophy of science, philosophy of the life sciences. And this led me to studying the nature-culture divide, cultural evolution, how it relates to biological evolution. And if you do that, at a certain point, you need to study not just nature versus nurture, but it occurred to me that the concept of human nature in the background of all these discussions is actually still underexplored, at least at, oh. at the level at which I try to do it in the book now. Yeah, no, that's, um, I think that's absolutely right. And uh, you have some very interesting, a lot of interesting things to say about it and, and where you end up with, uh, a tripartite view. Um, so you're focusing on the nature part of human nature um, and the, the human part, you, you, you deliberately sort of set that aside. Um, could you just, you know, just before we absolutely just forget the human part and focus on the nature part, um, say a bit about, you know, what you think about the human part, you know, and the distinction you draw between humankind and humanity? Sure. The, the one thing about asking not about human nature rather than human nature is that asking about what, it, what, what the human nature is rather than another animal's nature would be an empirical question. So that's a scientific issue. And I'm not a scientist, I'm a philosopher. So actually, I, I thought the choice then is to, to summarize the empirical knowledge about being human that is available. But I think that wasn't philosophically challenging for me. That You can do that, and I wouldn't say, oh, that's not philosophy because it's just summarizing what's known in the empirical sciences. I think that's, I call that synoptic philosophy or a uh, very general philosophical anthropology, but my ambition was more analytic and more tuned towards the uh, way philosophy of science is done, where you look at the mechanics of the actual reasoning that's used in order to talk about humans in the sense of a concept of human nature. And uh, as I told you, I came to the topic from the point of view of understanding the nature-culture divide as it is used in many discussions. And also 
background is discussions about naturalism that is always in the background of philosophy of science discussions, at least if you come from philosophy of mind and analytic philosophy. And the term nature is just so mind-boggling and so interesting, so tough. So I was more interested in understanding that part of the concept of human nature rather than understanding what is, what is it actually like to be human? What is it actually that we are mm-hmm. in the sense of uh, what I could then call a descriptive concept of human nature? Okay, so, so you, you start with two questions, you know, about nature. You know, what is it to have a nature, you know, and, um, and then what is it for something to be due to one's nature? And and you note that uh, the the concept that we before you analyze it away, <laughs> um, the concept of nature is um, is sort of surrounded by a whole landscape of various sorts of dualisms, and that this uh, suggests that the concept of a of a human nature may be difficult to get rid of. And ultimately, of course, you do recommend getting rid of it. Could you, could you explain a bit about the concept of nature that, that you are you know, ultimately trying to get rid of? Mm-hmm. The, the concept of nature that I try to get rid of is, most importantly, the old essentialist way of talking about human nature, where a human nature is giving you something that allows you to classify individuals, something that allows you to explain how they are and then derivatively give you predictions and descriptions about how these individuals are. And in essence, in the old sense, is giving you all these things at the same time. So that's the, the background. And I'm not the first one, certainly, who is attacking an essentialist account of human or bonobo or whatever species nature. Mm-hmm. But I, um, I tried in book length <laughs> and I think uh, in a depth that hasn't been done in the literature and philosophy of science uh, so far. And uh, the landscape of dualism comes in because um, if the focus is, as I said, about human nature and nature has often been used uh, uh, synonymous to the term essence, and if essentialism is the main um, problem, first of all, at least that's where I started, there are the other two challenges too, then um, you notice that the term nature is, in contrast to the term essence, has, in addition to that essentialism, attached to it that landscape of dualism. And that What does that mean? It means that the meaning of the term nature is so multifaceted that you can grasp what it means only if you add the contrast. So natural versus supernatural, natural versus cultural, natural versus artificial, to name the the most important contrasts. Now, the main contrast for the book then is n- natural versus cultural. 
but it's not the only contrast. And if you if you take the contrast of nature and maybe that master contrast between nature and culture in the background, and then you look to where we're in our reasoning, in our way of interacting with each other and the social ontology that we use for that, is it showing up? It shows actually up quite a lot. And just as an instance, sex versus gender has a connotation that relates to nature versus culture again. And then it's so interesting that divide be- and nature versus culture, and that also means the concept of nature, of human nature, is so entrenched that if you if you just start like, oh, okay, we have to get post-essentialist because essentialism is wrong for biological species, then this shows that it will be hard to get rid of that concept because it's it's almost everywhere. It's like a cancerous metastasis <laughs> cell that has inscribed itself everywhere in the um, history of Western philosophy, maybe. Mm-hmm. And now that's a diagnosis, right? Yeah. <laughs> that it is entrenched. Now, then you switch your hats and you say, Never mind the diagnosis, I want to get rid of it. So I try my best to cure it. So, and, but what I end up with is, even though it's eliminativist in, in a very specific sense, the account I try to give is more in its core, more constructive. Because I do say that something is left off the old essentialist and monist and dualist concept of human nature that in particular scientists can use in order to study humans and study how to how it is best to nurture them how it is best to educate them etc and um, so there's something left of human nature but it's not uh, what philosophers traditionally think that human nature is. And the eliminative part is only about the word human nature. Okay. Not the, not the concepts behind. It's only about, given that in a post-essentialist frame, there's not one thing in the world that can be called a human nature, but there's something that allows you to classify humans, which are called a classificatory nature, something that allows you to describe how humans are, which I call the descriptive nature. And then there's something that are called explanatory nature, which is a certain part of developmental resources that help us in a special sense in explaining how we are. Mm-hmm. And these three natures, if you want to use the term nature, refer to different things in the world. And if they do so, then the term nature refers to three different things, and then it's ambiguous. It has become ambiguous by the move to post essentialism. And philosophers never like ambiguous terms. And then they <laughs> say, just because. In the name of clarity, we should get rid of the term because in the post-essentialist frame, it doesn't have a precise reference anymore. And I'm well aware that if a philosopher comes along and says, yeah, don't use that word anymore because it's ambiguous, then 
no one will care. But <laughs> I still say we should not use it. And maybe more and more people follow and it has an impact. And over time, the way we talk does change. And it's also a matter of decision. Okay, well, um, let's let's get to how you get to that conclusion. Um, so you 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 start the book uh, by specifying a number of what you call building blocks of a nature, um, which are uh, what you call specificity, typicality, fix, fixity, and normalcy. And um, each of these blocks um, is challenged in a number of ways. These are blocks to some sort of essentialist view, um, uh, among other things, but, but primarily that. Um, and so you've got uh, challenges that you call the dehumanization challenge, uh, the Darwinian or biological challenge, and then the developmentalist challenge. So could you, uh, and there's a, there's a lot there, right? So that's, that's covering a number of different chapters, but perhaps you can uh, kind of tell us, you know, your overall critique here of the nature of the concept uh, in terms of these four building blocks and then the three challenges to those, uh, to understanding those building blocks. Mm-hmm. So if you have the, demonization challenge, the Darwinian challenge, and the developmentalist challenge. So the demonization challenge is about the what I call the vernacular concept of human nature, how the concept is used in in the social world, not in sciences. And I claim with the reference to all kinds of empirical evidences that in the social world, one of the what are called pragmatic functions of the concept of human nature, the the way it is used, for what it is used, is to regard other people as less human, which is uh, what dehumanization refers to, that some people are dehumanized, they regard it as less human. And a concept of human nature, and because you mentioned the four uh, building blocks, If it assumes typicality and normalcy, meaning typicality means in a a strict old essentialist sense universality, strictly all and only humans, or all, sorry, all humans um, are this and that, are, for instance, uh, heterosexual, which is wrong, right? So... um, Universality is usually hard to apply, and I claim you won't ever find anything that's uh, as a you know you should never say uh, never as a philosopher, but it will be hard to find anything that is universal. Try it, and then we will have the fight of whether you succeed. So the burden of proof is on those who claim that there are strictly universal traits that all humans share, and. If, you, if, if that's something you use, claims like this, all humans are heterosexual, then you dehumanize by using such a claim those who don't comply with that claim that you make, which is wrong. So by having these generalizations in mind in the social realm, we 
dehumanize other people. And essentialism comes in via the claim that what's typical, what's shared by most, even if you don't go for a universal claim, all humans, you can still say most humans are like that. And it is how you should be. That's normalcy, the fourth mm-hmm. building block. If that comes in, you can you can dehumanize people even though you don't make a claim claim about all humans are so a statistical strictionalization all humans so um, that's why if you use these two building blocks of traditional concepts of human nature whether they're in the strict sense essentialist or not doesn't matter so much then that can lead to dehumanization and demonization is a challenge then because at first we, given our humanism in the background, we think, no, we, we are equal in terms of being human. So we, it has a social political side that uh, makes the concept of human nature dangerous. And I also show with respect to the demonization challenge that it shows that the way, because of the, uh, the functionality that, that I try to show that the concept in the social realm as a vernacular concept is used in a functional sense, the content can change indefinitely, that uh, it's a very subjective perspectival concept of human nature, the way it is used in the social world. That's the demonization challenge, because if something is too perspectival, then how can science use it in an objectivist sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the Darwinian challenge is about specificity and typicality because specificity and typicality, take, specificity means something is a property that only humans have. And if you have um, specificity and typicality all in only humans, you have necessary and sufficient conditions. And that's what we always want in philosophy or traditionally always want in philosophy. And that's an essentialist way of thinking about it. And if you, what I try to show, following the anti-essentialist Darwinian consensus, this doesn't fit the ontology we now use in biological sciences that take Darwin seriously. And then the third challenge, uh, the developmentalist challenge, that connects to fixity. And fixity is important because very often if people talk about human nature, then they assume that what is part of human nature is not just typical and specific for human humans, something that other species don't have, and normal, so you ought to have that property, but it's fixed, you can't change it. It's mm-hmm. there and inevitably. And that aspect is usually connected with the concept of innateness. And what's part of human nature is innate. Mm -hmm. And this is certainly challenged by what's now called the interactionist consensus, that there is almost no empirically, maybe not all, but most properties we have empirically studied don't have as in the strict sense, a genetically determined setup because they all depend on 
interaction with the environment and the environment has an impact on how the property looks like. Even so-called genetic diseases are depend on an interaction with the environment in many senses and uh, I think I shouldn't go into the details of that now. Rather wait because it's my answer is already quite long. So um, the fixity is challenged by the interactionist consensus about nature and nurture interacting all the time. And given these three challenges, then the question arises, what's left of these four building blocks if these three challenges um, are convincing? Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me just uh, go back to the Darwinian you know, the, the sort of, well, the, the Darwinian and developmentalist challenges are both sort of non-starters because of, you know, biology, you know, the science of it. Um, so they're a little bit different from the, the dehumanization challenge, which, which appears to be that, um, uh, it's, it's the vernacular term is, or concept is, is used for, for, basically immoral purposes, non-unethical purposes. Uh, but the other two, uh, someone who who's defending, let's say, an essentialist or some sort of essentialist account um, might say that, well, you know, every, every human being, you know, for one, for one thing, you know, has a, a human genome, you know, we've mapped that. And even if it's, I don't know what the percentage is, you know, 95% or something common with, with a chimpanzee or something. It's still a distinctively human genome. Um, and um, yes, there's interaction with, uh, with, with nurture. Um, but for example, uh, just to give a simple, maybe simplified example, every, every, uh, you know, in a, in a generic sense, every uh, normal child, uh, I'll just use the concept <laughs> as I wish, um, every, every normal child, you know, who does not have severe disabilities of some sort um, will, you know, come to acquire a particular, you know, language. Um, and there are very clear developmental milestones there that, you know, pretty much you know, human children reach. Um, and this, of course, will be conditioned by, you know, the culture that they're in. So if they're in uh, in Germany, then the language, for example, they all they will start to speak will be German. And if they're in the United States, it will be English and so forth. So there's, it's, it's the, the response by somebody who is saying there is a concept of essence that survives uh, these sorts of challenges um, would say that yeah, there there's a perfectly fine biological, uh, biologically based essentialist concept um, that then gets modulated in various interactive ways with the culture, but that somehow this is you know sufficient to get what they want the essentialist concept for right so how how would you respond to the person who pushes back in that way well karen that's now a lot but let me let me try to <laughs> pull it apart because it's 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 
you packed in now a couple of things that I, I rip apart. And only if Excellent. you rip them apart can you see why the old game doesn't work anymore. So first, if, you, if we go back to typicality, I'm not saying against some other people who challenge the concept of humanity that we can't have general claims about being human. So there are statistical generalizations about how we are. And even David Hull, who is uh, famous for challenging the concept of human nature and to whom I'm indebted a lot, so basically I'm defending him in book length, um, would say, yeah, sure, we can have, at a certain point in time, we can have statistical generalizations about how we are, on average, statistically few. So um, you said a normal child will have... I think that's what you said. And mm -hmm. I would say a child of a being that is born to humans is likely to have the developmental resources that, once again, makes it likely that that individual develops a language that most of us have. It's twice likely, right? Likely that it has the developmental resources, meaning uh, uh, an entity born to other humans, which has the classificatory nature, is likely to have um, the, to share then a huge part of the developmental resources that I call an explanatory nature, which then makes it likely, if the respective human culture joins in appropriately, that do you in the end have an entity that factors into that generalization and confirms the generalization that usually, normally, statistically normally, individuals, for instance, speak the human language that we now use? Mm -hmm. Now, and I think it matters how we talk there, whether we say we will develop or it is likely because that's all the fuss about not overgeneralizing and not um, dehumanizing those who do not confirm, who don't speak, or who don't walk like us but sit in a wheelchair, who, etc., etc. So I think it is important to not overgeneralize in order to keep dehumanization in check. Now. The, other, the next thing is that why is that so important to then have this tripartite picture of there's a classificatory nature, there's an uh, explanatory nature, and there's a descriptive nature? Why is that not nonetheless essentialist? Why can't we, or should we not? We can use the term essence if you want, but I think it's traditionally refers in the debate to something else, so we shouldn't use the term for that. And the deeper reason is that essence, so cashed out, that means that essence refers traditionally to something that gives you necessary and sufficient conditions for something, in this case, being a human. Now, if you use a property like human language, which you did, that, and you say, um, isn't that the part of, not the essence, but at least part of the essence of what it means to be human, because a normal child is likely to develop it, then you 
you ignore that, as I said already, you ignore that one individual who might not, or there is not just one, but there are some, who mm-hmm. happen to have a mutation that, that prevents the full development of that language capacity. And, and I, I, I quote the FOXP2 gene mutations that are very famous with respect mm-hmm. to language as, a, as, a, as something that is involved in, in, in language impairments. Mm-hmm. And so that individual would not confirm to the essence and if you go on and you say, yeah, but there's a property cluster and that individual is still having the human essence because it has other properties. And then I, I tell the essentialist, yeah, well, now you go on and you go on, but the, the, the circles you can draw in terms of including individuals as part of, yes, they share the human essence, the circles that you draw whatever circle you take picks out a different group of individuals. And mm-hmm. it's true that all circles superimposed on top of each other reach roughly the, the individuals we call humans, but only because you already decided whom to count. Because whom you count in developing your generalizations has been this is what I claim in the book, decided already implicitly from the start, namely by a genealogical criterion, namely those count who are born to other humans. So the actual selection criterion, who is in and then whom you count for developing your claims about how we, in quotation marks, are, is decided by genealogy. So the actual necessary and sufficient conditions you're using in order to include all humans and exclude all non-humans is the simple and trivial non-explanatory non-explanatory criterion because it doesn't explain you much it does explain you something i tried Mm -hmm. to show but it doesn't explain you something at first glance that are all and only those are humans who are born to humans and that's a genealogical relationship that's not a property like language and, okay. and then you don't have an essence in the sense of something that gives you necessary and sufficient conditions for membership in a kind and explain at the same time the way, the reason why we are the way we are. And that's what a traditional essence, for instance, the essence of gold, the atomic structure of gold gives you necessary and sufficient conditions for classifying a token of gold into the kind and it explains you the surface properties of uh, all token golds and um, the, the generalizations about the kind. And you don't have that for uh, biological species. Right, right. So, so you've already mentioned um, the uh, what you call the, the tripartite or what, what survives of the nature concept uh, on your view. Uh, it survives in a tripartite manner, right? So you've got the, um, you've got, as you mentioned, the classificatory concept, an explanatory concept, and a descriptive concept. 
um, so you've, you've said a bit about these already, and, and um, I should point out that also the, this tripartite division um, is intended to be at least um, uh, in some sense uh, satisfying your, your goals of being objective and um, non-normative and, and not contributing to, to dehumanization. So could, could you... Tell us a bit more than you already have about these, the three concepts that the vernacular concept gets divided into, on your view. So it's, um, that might be missing, it's the essentialist concept that gets divided okay. into uh, the tripartite system. And that gives you then, by going post-essentialist, you go pluralist. And okay. the interactive is added um, by that nature, nurture, nature and culture interacting all the time. And that, that tripartite grid, I, that's the scientific image. And the vernacular image, that stays outside, as much as should stay outside, as much as possible. It's, I claim in the end, it's not completely possible because even... All these three post-essentialist concepts, unfortunately, can still be used in a dehumanizing way. The problem of dehumanization is deeper than the problem of essentialism. You don't um, need... That was actually something... Yeah, that I was actually going to ask if, if they do, in fact, escape the, the, the threat of dehumanization. No, and I think nothing ever will completely... But we can get closer to preventing dehumanization as much as possible by going post-essentialist first, and second, by not using the old word nature when we don't have to. And very often we don't have to. We can use other words for the so-called classificatory nature, so-called descriptive nature, so-called explanatory nature. And that would help in order for clarity, which we love as philosophers, and for uh, preventing dehumanization as much as possible, which we love as humanists, I would say, I hope. Um, okay, so let me, let me just go back to the, the particular, each branch of the tripartite reconstructed uh, post-essentialist pluralist interactive view. Um, so the descriptive nature is one where you reconstruct this idea of fixity with, um, with stability uh, of a property in a population uh, over time. Mm -hmm. um, and, well, let's just start with that. What, what, could you say something about that in particular and, and yes. what, what aspect of the old concept that kind of inherits or... or supersedes, I should say. So I, I claim that the, the way the concept of human nature is used in sciences, uh, in, in, in businesses of describing people, is not just referring to typicality in space, but also to typicality in time. And that's what my colleagues uh, who discuss the concept of human nature in a post-essentialist manner, I think have missed so far. Uh, David Hull, for instance, has left it out in his way, in what 
is left of human nature once we got rid of essentialism in, in his account, there's much less left uh, because the stability is not showing up. He says the only meaningful way of, to talk about human nature is that something is prevalent, typical in my language, at a certain point in time. And I say, yes, true, but we mean more by the, ter by the descriptive concept of human nature because usually we mean if something is part of human nature, it's typical in space and time. So things that are shared since a long time between humans. For instance, the property of carrying a cell phone around with us or using it is quite typical, quite, it's frequent, so most humans do it. It's frequent and it's widespread, meaning it's, it's distributed all over the world globally. And these are the two conditions that go into typical. But this alone isn't sufficient for calling carrying a cell phone being part of human nature, right? So typicality is not is too wide. It's, we need something else that joins in that's necessary, that a property has to fulfill to be part of the descriptive nature. For instance, language. Everyone would agree that it's part of the descriptive human life form. Call it human nature if you want. It's part of the descriptive human life form to speak a spoken language with this and that grammatical features, etc. And this is an example that uh, I use because it's uh, uncontroversial and contrasted with the cell phone carrying. And the difference is that that also goes back in time, if it just empirically, empiristically, let's say, so minimal ontology as possible, you just, it extends in time. Now, Edward Macherie, who has a similar account as mine, would say that uh, what brings human language in as a property that is part of descriptive nature, what he calls nomological nature, and uh, kicks cell phone carrying habits out, is that a property like human nature is evolved. And I say, well, evolved is not the thing that counts because we have very old cultural habits like um, cooking that we wouldn't call part of human nature. So there is a cultural evolution is something that by now I think that's consensus is very old, very powerful. It interacts with the biological evolution of our bodies and Therefore, you can't say evolvedness brings you in because that clashes with how culture and nature interact. And then I say it's, it's not evolvedness, but Edouard Macherie is on the right track in the sense that he noticed that there is an extension in time in terms of typicality. Something is somehow old, but oldness alone is too vague. And I say it's stable because stable is what's the equivalent of frequent in time, uh, frequent in space, and I add frequent in time. It's still vague, but it's uh, 
the best option I think we have. Something is part of the descriptive life form of being human if um, if it's typical in space and time and typical in time I just call stable because that fits more the way of speaking traditional naming that something is part of human nature if it's fixed. Mm-hmm. But it's not fixed, right? Because human nature changes. Right. Um, so it's not fixed, but it's stable. Okay. So I'm, 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 I'm moving one step back to the old way of reasoning from uh, David Hull, let's say, by adding stability. Okay. So and so, how is this? Um, just kind of briefly, how how does this descriptive nature contrast with the classificatory and explanatory natures, or or those those you know replacement concepts? Uh, the classificatories, I say that the right now in the way we interact and think, the classificatory nature of the of the human species is the genealogical nexus between humans, which is uh, something that David Hull has defended already. Being born to humans, as I said before, being con- or being conceived by humans be precise is necessary and sufficient to be a human so um, if nature is something if an essence is giving you something necessary and sufficient conditions for membership in that kind then that's it but it doesn't explain you anything that property mm-hmm. of being related isn't is not what we mean <clears throat> by human nature if you want to explain why we have human language right it's not giving you in and of itself an explanation if you want to have an explanation rather than a classification you point to certain genetic factors as you did before mm-hmm. epigenetic factors we would add nowadays the complete cellular machinery and everything else that goes into biological reproduction and then we add and we call that nature in an explanatory sense and then we add culture to complete the explanation because we've learned that you always need nature and culture, nature and nurture and the environment to mm-hmm. interact. And that's what I said before. Depending on what you want, do you want to have a classification? Then, yeah, I can give you one. But that what I give you there is not giving you an explanation. And that's mm-hmm. not controversial. Um, I think what's uh, what others in the field, uh, those who share my post-essentialist taste, they would then always opt for one of the replacement concepts, either descriptive or an explanatory or classificatory nature. And say, no, we don't have to choose. We don't have to stay monist when we go post-essential. We can be a pluralist and say, if you're interested in a classification, take this. It's a replacement concept, and that fits if you have these interests. If you're interested in description, just take the cluster of properties that are typical in space and time for humans. And then uh, if you're interested in explanation, take the, call them homeostatic mechanisms, or directly go to some genetic and epigenetic and cellular factors that you... I I would still 
mm, not call, <laughs> um, that we could call it unexplanatory nature. You see, mm -hmm. I always slip back myself to using the word nature because that's our topic here, but I shouldn't right. use the word anymore. <laughs> so let me, here's just a kind of a wonky analytic philosophy question is, uh, traditional, you, you mentioned traditional, you know, philosophers like necessary and sufficient conditions. Um, and this is kind of blowing that part <laughs> to smithereens. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but there's a lot of philosophers, many philosophers like, they do, they do conceptual analysis. And one of the things that they want a concept to do is to enable certain inferences, you know, modal inferences. And I was just wondering, have you given up on that, uh, that goal of a lot of conceptual analysis in your replacement concepts? I mean, what sort of, what sort of modal claims might we, might, might we make about, uh, on the basis of, either, you know, any of the three uh, replacement concepts that you have, or do they have no modal consequences whatsoever? I intentionally left out the word modal. Uh, the word possibilities okay. is showing up, and also the um, choice of possible words. Because what I try to show is that we have to be very careful in saying something is impossible or something is possible, especially if you say it can't be otherwise, which is claim, these are claims that have often been made with respect to human nature. And I think they are very dangerous because it, as a show with respect to norms of reaction, the way how given certain biologically inherited development resources our explanatory nature, so to say, um, and how it interacts with culture. If you, if you track that and then you say, okay, the, in the environments measured so far, culture doesn't make a difference to how these, how this, these bodies react to the, uh, in, in context. So it's, Whatever we do, you can't change. If some, some entity has that mutation, it will always be wrecked. It will always be diseased and, um, or whatever you, you track. I, I take the example of body height. It won't, have, it won't be tall. Now, if, you, if that's a flat norm of reaction, if the environment never makes a difference to how the properties express given a certain genetic or otherwise biologically inherited factor. Now, that flat norm of reaction, meaning in a strict sense, there is genetic determination, it can't be otherwise, holds only for the measured environments because we know empirically that you can't extrapolate. Take another environment and the situation for the norm of reaction empirically might be already different. And that's all the kind of um, interesting stuff in when people study nature-nurture interacting. So you have these interactions that really matter if you study a new environment. And 
Now imagine that certain only certain environments are tested because we we don't think about the other possible words because they're socially maybe too far away from how we imagine a life, a human life. And then we say, yeah, no, it's not possible because we haven't imagined certain possible words. And that is actually then when when the the when the when it matters for social situations for instance which i do in one of the chapters when there are explanatory looping effects and when we actually create the patterns of similarities and differences that we then call our nature the way we are and um so to sum up that point I'm very careful with modal talk because I think it's um, claims that build on on it. If it's life that we consider, are very hard to make secure, even though life is a hotbed of possibilities. That's what evolution has taught us, right? That lots of possibilities, but at issue is not just that something is possible because so many things are possible but at issue is which possibilities do we look at and therefore make it real i think that's my perspective on that okay good um well let me let me you you mentioned edward mashri before and you know as you're aware he he has in a, a earlier book, I think it was called "Doing Without Concepts." Uh, you know, he he goes through a number of different theories of what a concept is, and he decides that uh, we should just get rid of the concept of of concept. Right? That's that's why he has the title he does, and um, part of you seems to be sympathetic with this but of course you're you don't end up being eliminativist at least not in that way i mean you, the name the title of your book is not you know doing without nature um but you end up with you know three concepts rather than one why not just be an eliminativist about it uh well you saw you sort of are so so yeah let me just why don't you end up being uh you know just saying just do without it and uh and just end it right there i mean given my background in analytic philosophy i i have a taste for elimination i think it's inscribed in in that tradition to what you can get rid of you get rid of and but i, I just came to the conclusion that we shouldn't get rid of the con the three post-essentialist concepts of human nature. And I will give you a reason in a minute why I think we shouldn't get rid of them. What I, the eliminative part, the eliminative finish, I say, uh, in the book is just about the words, as I mentioned before. But the word human nature, how we use that word to prevent misunderstanding and to prevent misuse of the concept for dehumanization. So 
let's get rid of the word. Let's try as much as possible as a regulative ideal not to use the word anymore. And we will only fail, but the more we try, the more successful we will be. And to still use the concepts, the post-essentialist post and interactive concepts. And why do we need them? Um, I have one example in the book about a father raising, claiming to raise his child speciesless. So the father says that human is a label that um, some use, but he doesn't want to use that label for his child and uh, claims that he raises his child speciesless, so the child can choose between identifying with a squirrel and then they allow the child to live as a squirrel. And then if the child, I think, he, if I remembered correctly, he claims that the child has moved on from squirrel nest to some dog, Nest. This, and that, this is a true story. Right? This is a true story, yes. Um, yeah, and okay. I claim that the father might use whatever label, first whatever word, as long as that doesn't hurt the child. The child can also, uh, the father, sorry, can also pick its, the, a way of classifying individuals into kinds, and I don't care as long as that doesn't hurt the individual. But the individual child has an explanatory nature as an individual. It has certain biologically inherited development resources that do restrict the, the ways of treating that are good for the child. So given if you, if you still use and in this case, the explanatory concept of human nature. In order to confront the father, then no matter how you classify people into kinds, he has to respect that fact. And because of it's a fact which development resources are realized or are shared by that very individual that he shouldn't treat the child as he does. So it's not about labeling, it's not about classification, it's about the explanatory human nature. So it first shows you why the pluralism is important and because it provide, allows you to answer the father. And second, it um, shows you why we need a concept of human nature to prevent someone treating a, another human being just the way that person wants to treat that uh, being. And and now I could go on with examples. This is now just a very telling example of a person um, opposing the label being human or human species. But even if we look at daily interactions between people, we use a concept of human nature, not just for demonization, but we also use it, and interestingly, probably at the same time, so it's a complex social issue, we use it to predict how people will behave. We use it to decide how to interact with people, people whom we've never met before, people who come as refugees to our countries and need, we think, because they're human, some food. 
so we give them food because they're humans but we also learn that it's not just that they need food it's that they need non-disgusting food as i describe in the book so it matters what you put inside of the box of the properties that we count as part of the descriptive nature in our interactions and that we do have reflections on that because then i i can answer to my fellow human beings in a more humane way and i think that's also why we need a concept in this case a descriptive concept of humanity because it doesn't matter why a refugee wants non-disgusting food right to decide that i should give that person non-disgusting food and um if you want to have a global ethics, uh, an ethics that uh, cosmopolitan ethics that applies to all humans, to all homo sapiens, then I think we need a concept of human nature as Mother Nussbaum and uh, others have stressed. Okay. Um, so we're, we're running out of time. So I'm kind of, I, 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 you just mentioned Martha Nussbaum and she's of course associated with the capabilities approach and uh, to, to understanding the, the nature of, of human flourishing. Um, maybe you could say a bit about how your tripartite view, um, how how it might be used for addressing questions about what it is for a human being to flourish. Yes. Um, so I think what what is really important, Mother Nussbaum is one icon, and I, I'm not siding with her specificities, but what mm-hmm. I do say that if you want to bring in that normative approach of uh, having a global ethics, of care or however you want to specify that further then you what I, what i suggest what's the best solution is to say okay there is a descriptive human nature and it's actually quite a lot that we can put into that box there are lots of properties that are typically unstable over time in the group of individuals that we have classified beforehand as humans and and but not all of them are ethically politically relevant as for instance the need for food yes that's typical but that's not what is ethically important so the level of abstraction whether it's the need for food or the need for non-disgusting food that is decided by um, the pragmatics of that we um, want to act with respect to individuals. And and also the choice that we pick food rather than the opposable thumb, right? That's typical too, but whether we have an opposable thumb or not is for Nussbaum's capabilities approach completely irrelevant. But it is relevant as a typical property of our of, of us and therefore part of descriptive nature for a person who wants to explain the cultural evolution, for instance, the way culture developed over time and how tools have been invented, etc., and maybe even for the development of our mind. So depending on whether you're Mother Nussbaum and you care for global ethics or whether you are someone who tries to explain something in our history 
depending on on interest, you pick something else from the long list of properties that are part of human nature. Descriptive nature. Yes. Um, right. <laughs> so you, um, you pick, depending yeah. on interest, from that long list, because what's important on that list depends on your interest, epistemic interest or political interest. And I think that's that's all we need to have, on the one hand, a descriptive human nature uh, that is normative at the same time, without falling back to an old essentialist normalcy account where an essence is giving you the ideal and dis- discounting variation. We should never discount variation if not needed and never impose ideals of being human. Okay. In that old sense. Uh- yeah. So um, uh, I'd like to end with a question about what you're working on on now. Are you following up this book or have you turned to completely different topics or papers or issues? What's what's on the horizon for you? Well, what's on the horizon is definitely a follow-up on dehumanization because I think dehumanization is still uh, not studied sufficiently. So the new project runs under the label The Epistemology of the Inhuman and the main ambition is to study the negations of the human. So it's less about human nature. It's more about being human in the post-essentialist sense but still dehumanizing and what we can learn about dehumanization from a philosophical point of view There are some philosophers who have done very good work on that, but I think there's still a lot of work to do. And the history of that tradition actually, I think, has a very important starting point. And that is when Hannah Arendt addressed our way of evil after the World War II. So a lot of the empirical research and the philosophical research on demonization actually is has been done in post-World War II contexts. So I want to study that historically and philosophically. And um, you can't help but being a philosopher at the Central European University in Budapest than study academic freedom. And I think we are not, not just because it's a local problem that our academic freedom in a certain sense is attacked, but also globally, I think, um, looking at the role of knowledge in our society and the the way how science skepticism is combining with populism and attacks against academic freedom. That's in the long run definitely another topic that I want to work on. Very good. Uh, Well, I look forward to seeing that. I have my own interests in dehumanization also. But in the meantime, uh, I wish you luck with those projects. And thank you again for talking with New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Maria Kronfeldner, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Philosophy at the Central European University in Budapest. We've been talking about her new book, What's Left of Human Nature, a post-essentialist, pluralist, and interactive account of a contested concept. This is New Books in Philosophy. My name is Carrie Figdor. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.